blessing there. First Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to welcome Shirley Tadiarka with us. And Shirley, so good to see you. I wish you'd bring your membership back up here and just move back. It would be a blessing here. But we're glad to see Shirley here to, for this next few days here. All right. Look around you. If your neighbor needs uh, a Bible or needs to find their place, help them find their place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Go back with me to verse 8. Let's do this now. I, I like hearing our people read the Word of God. So here's, our, here's what we do. Your portion you read, you need to read loudly and clearly, so loud that you're annoying to your neighbor next to you, okay? And then I'll read my portion. So I'm going to read first. I'll read the even number verses. You read the odd number verses. And then we get the last verse, verse 13. We'll read together. We'll start with verse 8. I'll read. Then you guys read verse 9 and we'll alternate, okay? For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Congregation? Listen to verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, congregation. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men even as we do towards you. Altogether, to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Father, bless your word. We know that it will not return void to you. And uh, we pray that um, you would refresh us as if we came to a, an oasis with thirsting hearts. And Lord, that you would just fill us with the water of life tonight. And uh, we pray tonight that you would put a burning in our soul about some things that this passage speaks to us about. Whether it's a child, a new believer, or many who are established in the faith, God, I pray that you'll help us to just approach the Word of God tonight with fear and with trembling, that our hearts be encouraged and you'll work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A game changer is one who steps up and makes a big play that affects the outcome of a game. An example of that would be a, a game, an Orange Bowl game that happened a few years ago between West Virginia University and Clemson University. I don't know if any of you guys are, are football fans. I, I, I am to some degree, but I don't follow, follow college football as much. I know if you're from the South, everybody follows college football. There, there's just fanatics about that. But in this particular game, uh, Clemson University was trailing 21 to 17, but they had made some incredible progress. They had done four drives and had gained 256 yards about uh, 9.1 yards per play. I mean, they were just moving really, really well. And there, it looked like they were about to get into the end zone. If they got in the end zone with the touchdown and then with the conversion, basically they would have gotten a hand and probably won the game. However, their running back, Andre Ellington, as he was making his way to the end zone, he fumbled the ball. And that's a bad feeling when you're in a championship game. He fumbled the ball, and uh, he's right behind his blockers, so you kind of wonder how he did that. But he's right behind his blockers. He fumbled the ball uh, into the end zone, and the, the West Virginia player, Darwin Cook, picked it up. And would you imagine this? Darwin Cook made the game change. He ran back 99 yards to score a touchdown and gave uh, West Virginia U the, 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 the clincher to take that game there. You know, a lot of us grew up during the time 
during the 90s of, of the 80s and 90s when basketball, the big name in basketball, people like Michael Jordan. Of course, Michael Jordan, when you think about him, he was really the game changer when it came to basketball. And it was in the second game of the playoffs when, they, when the Bulls were playing the Lakers that, uh, <clears throat> that they, needed, really, they needed, needed a play from Michael Jordan. If you remember those days, and if you don't, you need to go back on YouTube and, and kind of look back at some of those games there because he played some, he made some incredible plays. But he made this play where... Um, where Cliff Livingston, one of the forwards for the Bulls, made, made, passed the ball to him. He saw the lane was clear, and if you ever watch Michael Jordan, he was just, you know, he was just so, so flexible in what he did. He made this drive, and then he saw the Lakers forward, the very, very tall forward, Sam Perkins, who, if you remember, Sam Perkins had very, very long arms and reach. He saw Sam Perkins in the way, and he made this, he made this, it was only a Michael Jordan type move. He was coming with his right, and he kind of flipped it to his left, and with his left, he made the ball layup, and he, and he made the play, and uh, scored the points over them. It was just kind of the game changers just kind of electrified the whole crowd or something like that. Game changers are important. A game changer can be a person, activity, or event that changes an outcome. It is the difference between success and failure. It's the vital ingredients that makes us a winner. I want you to notice in verses 8 to 13 tonight, Paul gives us a game changer that is essential for a local church. And everything we read about 1 Thessalonians is about the local church. We said this before, everything we need in terms of doctrine and practices and emphasis is found here in 1 Thessalonians concerning the local church there. And uh, you'll notice as we, we, uh, we continue where we left off last week, one of the key phrases that's used four times in chapter 3 is the phrase, your faith. Uh, notice it begins in verse 2. He says, and I sent Timotheus, our brother, a minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you, notice, concerning your faith. And then again in verse 4, he says, for verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even if it came to pass, and you know. Uh, no, I'm not, probably not the right verse, maybe it's in verse 5. Verse five. Now this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. And then again, in verse 7, he says, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you all in our afflictions, and distressed by your faith. In verse 8, for now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. And he talks about your faith. In verse 10, he talks about night and day praying exceedingly, that we might see your face, and might perfect that which is concerning your faith. Now, we said this last week, and the whole emphasis in the first eight verses of 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, deals with Paul's concern about the faith of the those believers. The whole emphasis revolves around discipling and discipleship there. Your faith refers to the foundational grounding of your life as a believer. Your faith refers to how well are you living the Christian life? Your faith refers to how you're doing through adversity, uh, sufferings, and trials. And your faith also refers to the closeness, the depth, and the transparency of your relationship with other people in the church. So when Paul is using the term your faith, those two words, he's using two words that are all-encompassing about every aspect of the Christian faith. Now, I, I, I like that because when I, when I read Paul, even though he was very far away, they were on his heart. He was burdened for them. He was concerned for them. You know, as we grow in the faith, as you have responsibility over people, we should be concerned about the faith of those around. And notice in verse 10, Paul makes mention this verse that we just re referenced to here, that uh, discipling, discipling here, it, it, the discipleship process, there's one element that is the game changer that in everybody's life. And you'll notice here that he speaks about how biblically speaking, the discipleship is not speaking about a class, but rather the process and the product of a life being built up in Jesus Christ. And he talks about the one element that's more important even 
the class itself, he talks about this element of praying exceedingly in verse 10. Would you notice that with me? He says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul is talking, what I refer to tonight for the sake of this message or Bible study, about the, the necessary game changer for a church, for discipleship maturity, for how believers make it through adversity, is how we treat the matter of prayer concerning one another. Now we've had many messages on prayer. One of our discipleship classes, I had to run out for a minute to just pop my head in there, one of our discipleship classes going through the letter P right now and studying about prayer. Now, I don't know about you. I have a lot of books on prayer. I, I count up in my library. I've got about 15 to 17 books on prayer. I've read, I think, just about most, if not all of them. And I'll be real honest with you with that and my studies on prayer. I feel like I don't know about this much about prayer. I don't really feel like I know that much. I don't even feel like I've entered the kindergarten of prayer. I feel like there's so much to learn about it. I, I'll tell you, every morning I start off or night, sometimes I pray, and I feel like, I just feel like I'm crawling. I just don't feel like I'm making it. I feel like, Lord, what am I doing, you know, and I feel like a failure many times when it comes to prayer, but I'm going to tell you tonight, when we look at verse 10, as we get through this this evening, we're going to see that prayer is the game changer, the game changer between a church that's on fire for God, a church that's not on fire for God. It's the game changer in terms of Peter getting released from prison, or Peter staying in prison. It's the game changer whether or not the fire comes down, or the fire doesn't come down. It's the game changer whether or not people get saved, or people don't get saved. But tonight I want us to notice in verse 10, how Paul emphasized in verse 10, the importance of how he he prayed so that there would be a difference in the life of these believers and how that's going to impact you and me. For those of us who are involved in discipleship making, it's going to add a whole new element in terms of how we approach discipleship making. For every mother and father tonight, if you'll listen very carefully and follow this, it is the game changer in terms of what God could do in the lives of our children or our future children. And so tonight, I want you to see some things tonight about the game changer praying exceedingly can be in our lives. Number one, I want you to consider, because we have a lot of new believers here tonight, I want you to consider first of all with me the fundamental in this game changer. The fundamental in this game changer. Now, the fundamental, when we, a fundamental when we refer to that means a necessary core belief and practice, okay? It is a basic essential to positive and, and, and successful outcome. So for instance, I'm kind of a basketball guy. I, I like watching basketball. You know, basketball, I remember as a kid, the first time I learned it, I couldn't even dribble. I didn't even know how you're supposed to pass. I, I didn't even know how to shoot. I was third grade. I was learning all these things. And I learned one thing that year when I, when I went, uh, was uh, in third grade. I learned that our coach emphasized the fundamentals. Every sport does that. They emphasize the fundamentals. And in basketball, the fundamentals are learning. You dribble. You spend your first hour dribbling. You spend your first hour doing layups. You spend your first hour just doing passes and running. And it's amazing that every, everything they do is based on those, those fundamentals. They practice those fundamentals all the time. How to put on a good offense. How to put on a good defense. And so for there. Now the Christian faith has fundamentals. We have identified five core fundamentals of the faith. These aren't the only fundamentals, but five core fundamentals that identifies as fundamentals. If you're not familiar with that, I want you to be familiar with it tonight. Number one, we believe that the Bible, all the Bible is the Word of God. Can I hear an amen about that tonight? All the Bible is the Word of God. And when we say the Bible, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. We believe it's without error or inerrant. We believe the Bible is infallible and that, that it's all-powerful. And for us who are uh, the King James Version of conviction. We believe God preserved his word in the English language in the King James Version of the Bible. So tonight we believe that the Bible is all the word of God. We don't believe it becomes the word of God when you read it. We don't believe it becomes the word of God at some other time. It is the word of God. It's always been the word of God there. So number one, the first fundamental we believe is the Bible is the word of God. Fundamental number two is the virgin birth. Now that's important. 
And I'll just say tonight, I, 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 it's kind of like we do a disservice to the doctrine of the virgin birth that we only preach about it during, during uh, Christmas time. Uh, sometimes I'll put on schedules for our teaching. Let's teach the virgin birth the second week uh, uh, of December there. And, and I have a teacher say, hey, didn't I just teach this last year? And I say, yeah, we're going to teach it again because it's a core essential. Now, some of our Baptist brethren, if you've got, if you got the book, the, ba- uh, the Two Babylons, how many of you got the book, The Two Babylons, have read that? Okay, you need to get the book, The Two Babylons, if you've never read that. It kind of takes you back in church history and Baptist history, helps us understand some things about the origins of Christmas and Easter and so forth. Well, you have to remember, Christmas in its origins was pagan. Okay, it had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus Christ there, and actually was worshiping a pagan god and all those kind of things like that. So, so there are some of our Baptist brethren, I would call them very hardcore fundamentalists, who, who believe that they shouldn't practice Christmas there, okay? And uh, if, you, if you get around a church that doesn't practice Christmas, it can be very sad during Christmas time, okay? And uh, it's just a very t- tough, difficult time there. And some of you might remember those early days of Heritage Baptist Church. We were kind of in that, in that mode there, and it was kind of quiet. People leaving on Christmas Sunday it was just like, what do we do here around this thing? But here's my thing. If, if you believe that, which is fine if you have that conviction, here's my problem with it. My problem if you hold that conviction, when do you preach about the virgin birth of Christ? When do you preach about the deed of Christ, okay? And I just feel like, you know what? Maybe, we don't believe Jesus Christ was born on December 25th. If anything, we believe he was born around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is around the fall. But regardless of that, we need to preach about the birth of Jesus Christ. We need to preach about the virgin birth. Now, virgin birth is important because that means Mary did not conceive with a human father. It was a, it was a miraculous conception where God, the Holy Spirit, touched her. But that's a core essential. Now, why is that essential? Well, that leads to the third core fundamental. There's the Bible is all the word of God. There's the virgin birth. There's the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's in your notes. Now, why is that important? A virgin birth leads to a sinless life. Hey, everyone here, you're born a sinner. Amen. You and I are born sinners. Why? Because our parents were sinners, okay? And so, but Jesus did not have a, sin, a sinful father. The heavenly father is his father. And so he could claim rights to his, his, uh, his, 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 his association, relationship with God the Father. But we believe in the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Uh, fundamental number four is the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. Now, vicarious means his substitutionary work. He took our place. He took our place in dying on the cross. We believe that without the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, we could not have a atonement for our sins. And then fundamental number five is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I say bodily resurrection, it's important for those who are not familiar with that because there are those who teach a spirit resurrection. Now, he, he rose bodily. He didn't rise in spirit. He rose bodily. Amen? He rose bodily. That's right there in the Bible that he rose a physical resurrection there, okay? Now, those are fundamentals about our faith. But I want you to notice in the context of what we're looking at tonight, prayer is a fundamental of our spiritual life. If you don't pray... You're spiritually dead. You don't pray, you don't have a spiritual life. Now don't take that wrong. I'm just, you're going to see this. We see this. Someone has used the analogy, prayer is to the spiritual life like breathing is to our physical life. You need to breathe to live. You need to pray to live. Now I want you to notice some quotes. You perhaps have not seen these quotes before, but D.L. Moody said this. This is so important about prayer. Dwight L. Moody said this. I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. That's a great thought. I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. Now, I want you to notice some things because some here tonight, you're growing in the faith. You're starting the faith. And if I had to identify probably one of three areas where many believers are, are struggling or have some difficulties in, right at the top of the list would be this matter of prayer. So I want you to see some things why prayer is important to us. Number one, prayer is essential as a game changer for our daily fellowship. 
We need prayers our daily fellowship with God. Now someone said this, if God is your father, please call home. That's a great thought, amen? If he's your father, call home. Uh, the Bible says in Mark 1.35, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And what did he do? There he prayed. Well, if Jesus thought it was important to get up before the sun to pray, I think that's a model for us, amen? It's a fundamental, okay? For our daily fellowship, okay? Um, you know, you would not have a good marriage if you get up in the morning and all you do is say to your wife, mm. Mm. And you keep doing that, man, you're going to be in the doghouse before long, amen? You, got, you, better, you men better say amen to that, okay? Or if you just, you know, if you kids, you young people, you get to that teenage, you get in that teenage mode, you just look at your dad, mm. well, your dad's going to take you behind the shed and there ain't going to be no more, mm, you know, because it's going to be, you're going to be, ow, you know, like for that, right? You know? For a daily fellowship. Hey, listen to what Henry Ward Beecher said. This is great. Let the day have a blessed baptism by giving your first waking thoughts into the bosom of God. That's great. The first hour of the morning is the rudder of the day. That's great. John Bunyan, I love this phrase he said, we've quoted before, he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. Prayer is a game changer for our daily fellowship. But notice secondly, prayer is a game changer because of the dynamic of faith. We need prayer because it is the dynamic of faith. Hey, you're not going to exercise it. I'm not going to exercise any kind of faith without prayer. Again, Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please him. How many want to please God tonight? Amen. Yeah. You want to please God, right? Without faith, you're not pleasing him. Now think about it with me today. How do we exercise faith today? How are we going to exercise faith tomorrow? How are we going to exercise faith the rest of the week? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But notice this. For he that cometh to God. What does that mean? Coming to God's presence. He that cometh to God must believe, that's faith, that he is. Now, by the way, tonight, he's the God who is, amen? Not the God who was, he's the God who is, amen? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is God on the throne. He is, not he was, okay? Or he will be, he is, okay? That, that he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What's that talking about? Prayer. The dynamic of faith is through prayer. As someone said this, prayer is not an escape from responsibility. It is a response to God's ability. Somebody else said this, our praying should be the prayer of faith, not faith in prayer. A lot of people say, I have faith in my prayer. No, you need to pray in faith. Amen? By the way, by the way, by the way, okay? James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, he talks about faith without works is dead. How many familiar with that? Amen? You know what he's talking about there? Because everything about James, every chapter in James deals with prayer. Faith without works. You know what he's saying? If you're not exercising faith through prayer, you're, you're, he says, you're not, if you're not doing that, your faith is dead. You're, he said, basically, your faith is not active. Your faith is dormant. Your faith is like a, a volcano that needs to be awakened there. Faith without works is dead. We exercise faith through prayer. Hey, we need to challenge ourselves to pray for some people to get saved. The hardest nuts to get saved. Amen. We need to pray for God to do something there. We need to give ourselves isolated time. It is a game changer because it's dynamic in faith. But notice something else. We need, prayer is a game changer for the defeat of our foes. We're not going to win the spiritual battle with guns and bullets. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Notice the defeat of our foes. Verse 5, Paul said this, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. 
lest by some means the tempter have tempted you in our labor be. Hey, Paul was very cognizant of the real devil. The devil's real. He is a foe. He's a spirit being. But he's a very powerful spirit. Now, thank God he's not greater than Jesus. Amen? You are of God, little children, because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4, 4. But we must recognize that he is a foe that we must contend with. And every day we must call upon the God of peace. As Paul said in Romans 16, we must call on the God of peace to bruise Satan under our feet shortly. There's a story there in Joshua chapter 10. With five kings, the Canaanite kings went to battle against uh, Joshua there up on the mountain. And uh, Joshua chased them. And that was the story there <coughs> where, where Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still for an entire day. And God held the sun still. And those five kings, they ran and they hid themselves in caves. And, they, and the Joshua told his captains, he said, hey, I want you guys to roll some stones and block those guys in so they don't run out so we can finish our campaign. They finished their campaign. Then they brought those men out. And he took all of those kings and he put them down on the floor. And he told every one of his captains, put your foot on their neck. He was demonstrating them that you have power and victory over the foe. Listen, prayer is our means by which we put our foot on the neck of Satan there. And so you notice Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now you'll notice this tonight. Wherever in most cases you have prayer mentioned in the spiritual warfare, it's always accompanied with watching thereunto. In other words, being vigilant, being careful, not being presumptuous, not taking anything for granted. Hey, thank God, when you have a great season of prayer, don't you feel like, man, you've met with God, amen? You have a great season of prayer, don't you feel like, man, just God came down, and even, even your room smells a little bit better, amen? You know that God's been in there, okay? And you just feel like everything's been good, but you know, if we're not very careful, if we're not watchful, the devil's going to seize upon that moment we took our eyes off the Lord, and he's going to attack us right at that moment there, and we, we could stumble there. And so, we see here in Ephesians 6, he talks about the whole armor of God. And so, for the defeat of our foes, he tells us we need to put on the, the, our, our feet need to be shod the gospel of peace, and we need the shield of faith, and our loins girt with truth, and our breast plate of righteous, the helmet of salvation in our head, and, uh, and the sword of the Spirit in our right. But we need to bind each piece with praying with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. So we pray, notice in verse, uh, Ephesians 6.18, it's praying for others. Spiritual warfare is realizing you're making supplication for others. Abraham, when he prayed for Lot's deliverance, he was in spiritual warfare as he's praying there. Uh, notice this, this quote. Someone said this, the devil laughs at our toil mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. We see the fundamental of prayer. Somebody prayed, wrote this down as a prayer. I want you to listen to this very carefully. Would you notice this in your notes? He prayed this, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change. And when we are right, make us easy to live with. Have you ever prayed that prayer? That's a prayer of humility. Lord, when we're wrong, make us willing to change. You know what people do when they're wrong? They leave. They abandon. They desert. They go away. Why? Because their pride gets in the way. And when they're right, they like to just, you know, kind of em emphasize that to the other person. And you know what this prayer says? When we're right, help us to be easy to live with. You know, that, that's something just for us to learn tonight as we think about the fundamental of prayer. Prayer is a fundamental game changer. Number two, go with me and look back at verse 10 again. He talks about the fundamental prayer. Would you notice in verse 10 the frequency in prayer? Now I believe everybody in this room believes in prayer. But how many of us believe, as Paul did by conviction, to pray night and day? And you look at the reference here, the context is we're getting, we're getting into this now. 
the context of this is praying for the faith development of believers that he loved. This is why this church was such a dynamic church. That's why we read chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. What an incredible testimony this church had. But Paul's writing to them, and he says here in verse 10, night and day praying. Night and day praying. True ministry is night and day. I, I, think, I think in our Bible college, it will change this as we, we roll back out our Bible Institute. We're going to change it a little bit. But I think our Bible colleges today need to emphasize to students in training that ministry is night and day. Amen? Ministry is night and day. Okay? Ministry is serving God. You're, you're on call all the time. It's not just medical professionals and, uh, and, and, and public safety people, first responders that are on call all the time. Hey, we, all of us serve Jesus Christ. We're on call all the time. Amen? And night and day. And Paul believed this so much. Look at earlier in chapter 2. Look what he said in chapter 2 in an earlier verse there. We talked about this a while back there. He said here in verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 9. For you remember brethren our labor and travail. For laboring night and day. Because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preach unto the gospel of God. Paul spoke about night and day he labored and served God. And that's not the only time he did that. He talked about it in the morning. He talked about here in verse 10 of chapter 3. Night and day he prayed. Now this guy was busy. Paul had a busy schedule. But he made time. He purposely made time. He knew there was a spiritual battle going on. He made time in the morning. He made time at night. And I believe when he speaks about night, it may be perchance that Paul was praying when everybody else was sleeping. You go back to Acts chapter 16, when the vision came to Paul there, down at Troas. I believe that was at night while he was praying. Some of the great visions that Paul got, he got while he was praying. We see over in Acts chapter 18, when he was at Corinth, and in his heart, he was wondering, now Lord, we're seeing people saved, and the church just got started. Am I going to have to leave again, Lord? Are they going to stone me again? Are they going to throw me out? And God appeared to him in a vision. I believe all those great visions he got came during his times of prayer. I think God was clarifying them. I think a lot of times when we're confused... I think a lot of times we're not sure what to do. We need to spend seasons of prayer so God unclutters our thinking. Amen? He needs to unclutter our thinking and to help us get clarity in our thoughts and clarity in our mind. I'll tell you, mo almost all my messages, I I'm just cluttered in my thinking. It's not until I have a season of prayer that God unclutters my soul and clutters my mind so I'm clear in my thinking and I get the mind of God. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. You can ask the preachers here. They don't understand it either. And if you do understand it, you're being proud and you're not being, you're not being truthful. Amen? And I think tonight that we just understand there's some things that God just shows us through prayer there. Now, notice some things here. Psalm 55 verse 17. David said this during time of great trial. Evening, that's interesting. Evening and morning and noon will I pray and cry aloud. He should hear my voice. Now what was the context that? He was, the context here is casting his burden upon the Lord. Evening, morning and noon. You're carrying a great burden tonight. You need to be praying to God. Get off the chat lines. Amen. Stop writing Ann Landers. Talk to God. Amen. Evening, morning, and noon, okay? Lamentation 2.19. Look at Lamentation 2.19. God gave me this in my devotions last year. Boy, it burned in my heart. Changed my prayer life last year. He says, Arise, cry out in the night. And the beginning of the watches. Now, the beginning of the watches is 6 p.m. First watch. 6 to 9, first watch. 9 to 12, midnight, second watch. 12 to 3 is the third watch. Fourth watch, 3, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Watches, arise, cry in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thy heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands towards him for the life of thy young children. Hey, listen, I wish I read that verse when I was raising my children. 
He said, you better lift up your hand. And there, the context, of course, is he's talking, as Jeremiah, God's talking to Jeremiah, was Jer- Jerusalem had been taken, uh, been, been, been overcome by the Babylonians. And he talked about the solitary city. He says, hey, you leave. And, 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 and Jews were taken to captivity. He says, lift up your hands towards him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. Hey, we ought to be so sensitive about the spiritual need of our children spiritual need of the people we're, 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 we're ministering to that we sense there are, there's a hungering in their soul that only God can meet. Amen? And so we look at here, he's talking about praying there in the evening, morning, noon. Look at Daniel, Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. Now what, what writing is that about? Well, they passed the law. His peers passed the law. It was illegal to pray. By the way, I don't think we're far from that here in America. Amen? Don't, don't, don't think that just because we may have a conservative majority inside the, in the Supreme Court that they're going to side with the believers. I'm not really sure that's going to happen. And he says here they passed the law. His peers passed the law to make it legal to pray because they went after Daniel. He's the only Christian among all those other pagans there. Notice chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened, his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and he prayed. Later on, Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, praying without ceasing. I think he had the idea of what he said in chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Timothy 1, 3, Paul told Timothy, I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Hey, the game changer for our church, the game changer in making disciples for Jesus Christ, the game changer in seeing God do some great things and answering prayer according to faith is night and day praying. Frequency. Frequency. You know, we're just trying to encourage people to pray. Amen, Pastor AJ? We're just trying to encourage people to pray. Hey, you know what Paul's saying us? I've already assumed you know you're supposed to pray. What I'm encouraging you to do is he's saying is praying night and day. Night and day. There's a frequency in our praying. Night and day implies people are always on your heart. Ninety-day praying implies giving your waking moments in prayer for people whose lives you want to see change. Ninety-day praying implies a consistent, unstoppable discipline where nothing interferes with your time with God in prayer. We see the fundamental in this game changer. We see the frequency in this game changer. We look at verse ten again. Would you notice the fervency in this game changer? He says night and day. Would you notice these two words? Praying exceedingly. Say that with me tonight. Praying exceedingly. Now, you spend some time on these two words, it's going to grip your heart. The word praying that's used here is not the typical word which is predominantly used in the New Testament, the word prosukiumai. Prosukiumai encompasses all the words for prayer, like supplication, intercession, all of that. Typically, it's translated praying. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus talked about our Father, he said, when thou prayest, it's the word prosukimai. That's not the word he's using here. It's the word, listen tonight, it's the word diomai. Diomai is only used 22 times in the New Testament. Diomai is a much stronger form of prayer. Diomai literally means a desire that unless you get that desire, you're not satisfied. It means to beg for something and to implore for something. And notice he says here, he's using this word. It means to greatly desire to beg. Now I want you to notice some verses of Scripture. I only took a few of them out to extract these verses so you can understand how the word diomai is used. Because when you you bring this word diomai with the word exceedingly, praying exceedingly, it gives great emphasis on the kind of praying that is a game changer. 
Matthew 9, 38, this is how we pray for labors of harvest. Now, this is going to change us tonight. Because one of the things I'm going to be leading us to start preparing for in our services is for labors for the harvest. He says this, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that will send forth labors to his harvest. You know what Jesus is saying there? I don't want you praying casually. I don't want you praying for labors when you think about it. I don't want you praying for labors just when you have a missions conference. You know what Jesus is saying there? I want you, he's telling his disciples, bear in mind, in chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching kingdom living, as someone would say. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is on his ministry. He's going everywhere, doing everything for everyone. And you have these, these men that he selected as apostles. If you study chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, they're just kind of following him along. They're doing the old teacher-disciple thing. We're supposed to follow him. We're taking mental notes what he's doing there. And I guess that's what we're supposed to do. And I guess that's how we deal with lepers. And I guess that's how we deal with deaf people. And I guess when we have a gyrus situation, I guess that's how we deal with that there. And we have a, we, have, we go to Gadara, I guess that's how we deal with demon-possessed people. He wanted them to observe all those things. But Jesus brought them to this very critical moment. And in that tale in Matthew chapter 9, he sees the multitudes. And his heart is breaking for these groups of people. <clears throat> he describes them as sheep without a shepherd. And you don't understand it unless you're shepherding. They're wandering about. They were aimless. They were wandering. They were lost. They were sheep without a shepherd. And he made this statement which leads into chapter 10 of Matthew where he, he calls out these men and he tells them, you're now in the ministry and this is what you're going to do because he wanted to catch the essence of ministry. You know what he's saying here in chapter 9 verse 30? And this is why the church exploded in the book of Acts. He says, I want you to greatly desire and beg in your praying for labors for the harvest. Now the reason why, and I, I take responsibility for it myself, the reason why our generation is not sending out more, more missionaries, the reason why we're not seeing more men call, the reason why we're not seeing more men getting the desire, the reason why families are going away and seeking something more worldly for their behalf instead of doing God's will, I'll tell you the reason why. We are not begging God sincerely, as Matthew 9.38 says, we're not praying sincerely, God, send laborers to the harvest. We're not begging for it. When you go to Acts 13, 1, the cradle for modern missions there, we find the five preachers there, Paul, Barnabas, and three other men. They're, the Bible says they're fasting and ministering to the Lord. You know what they're, they're doing there? If you read, study very carefully, they're praying for God's will to be done. They're doing this. And the Holy Spirit tapped them on the shoulder. You two guys are going to go. Praying. Diomai, begging. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-two. This is how he, what he told Peter. But I've prayed for thee. Whoa. Now that's a different dimension to it. I'm begging God for you, Peter. I'm greatly desiring God to do something for you, Peter. I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, if anybody knew Peter's propensities to fall, Jesus did. Amen. By the way, if anybody knows your propensity and my propensity to fall, Jesus does. Amen. I beg God for you that thy faith fail not. Look at Acts 4.31. We saw this a few weeks ago when I was preaching from Acts chapter 4. And when they had prayed, they were begging God. What was the church doing? The church was concerned. They were being censured. In fact, they were censured. Don't preach anymore in that name. Don't accuse us of being accomplices to putting him to death. They didn't know what to do. And Peter and John, the Bible says, they went back to their own company. Let me give you a word of advice. When you're down... Listen to me tonight. When you're down, when you're discouraged, 
When you think the world's caved in, you think you've been hurt, you know what you need to do? You don't leave. You know what you do there? You do like this says in Acts chapter 4, you go back to your company. Where's your company? The local New Testament church. They went back to the church. And so they went there and they started praying. And the Bible says in Acts 4.31, are you there? Say amen. amen. When they had prayed, the whole church was begging God. What were they begging for? Boldness. Boldness. Power. Grace. All the things we read about in the ensuing verses. He says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Man, I'd like to see our place shaken. Amen. I see our place shaken. I'd like to see some of these lights fall out. Amen. And let the AV guys put it back. Amen. You know, whatever there. Okay. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Hey, I like that. The church was assembled together and they were praying with such an earnestness. They were begging God for power. The place was shaken. Hey, most of us in our praying, the place is taken. The place is not shaken. The filling of the Holy Spirit came. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. Notice Paul said this. We pray you, we beg you in Christ's stead in, 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 in taking Jesus' place. Be reconciled to God. The first word is praying. Would you notice the second word? We're talking about fervency. Are you there? Second word is exceedingly. I wish I had time just to explain this word, one word to you tonight. Exceedingly means with excessiveness, over and above, abundance, superfluous. Jesus explained it this way in Matthew 5, 47. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? By the way, that's a good question for us tonight. What are we doing more than others? Amen? And he said, that's the idea there. Exceedingly. Ephesians 3, 20. None to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. That's the thought there. Now, praying exceedingly is praying that goes beyond the norm. It is not normal praying. It is not ordinary praying. It pulls out all the stops. It's willing to take whatever risks are necessary. We see the fundamental, we see the, the frequency, but notice we see the fervency. This praying, this praying exceedingly is the game changer. No, look at the context here. Paul's concerned about the faith of these people. He's over in Corinth. He's hundreds of miles away. He didn't have enough time to spend with them. He's concerned. Did they catch everything? Did they get it? Let me say again tonight. Discipleship is not going through a book. Discipleship is the process of God making us more like him. So Paul's concerned. He says, did it stick? Did it change? That's every pastor's concern. Did they get it? Did they catch it? Is there change? If someone's struggling with sin, are they going to get past this sin problem? Someone's struggling with their prayer life and struggling with their Bible. Reading, did they get it there? And Paul was saying here in verse 10, he says, night and day, praying exceedingly. Paul was so burdened for their spiritual growth, the outcome, the finish of these believers. He said, I'm praying right now, night and day. I'm praying in such a way. I'm begging God way beyond the norm for God to do something. Now, let me tell you tonight, that's a game changer. Amen. That's a game changer right there for our lives. That's the game changer for the church. I'm not using game changer, the cute phrase. It's a game changer. It's going to be the difference maker on that. If just a small group here tonight began praying like this, it'd be a game changer what God could do. Thank God, 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 God bless the praying that our church has done for the last several weeks leading to this past Easter. What a weekend we had. 
man, we're going to meet tonight. We're giving out the names. We're going to, we're going to divvy those up. We're praying over those. I'm, I'm, I was praying over the names this morning. I took everyone. I called them all out by name. Everyone that gave us, I called all of them out by name this morning. I beg for their salvation. I beg for them to get in church. We need to pray exceedingly for that. But you notice in verses 10 to 12, we see this. We see the fundamental. We see the frequency. We see the fervency. But you notice the focus of his praying now. Now, we know, I began by just kind of starting us off by saying there's the fundamental of prayer. Prayer is the fundamental, is a fundamental game changer. I talked about prayer, the frequency for this game changer. It's night and day praying. I talked about the, the, I talked about the fervency. He said praying exceedingly. Now, let's go down and see how he prayed for them and what he prayed for them about. Now, this is going to help us tonight. Because we need to, as we study the Apostle Paul's prayers and Jesus' prayers, and we think about great Christians who prayed, they, they give us a pattern, they give us a model uh, for which how to pray for people, okay? So I want you to notice the focus there. He says, he says in verse 10, Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking your faith. Now, notice verses 10 to 12. He's going to identify for us the specific way in which he prayed. Number one, would you notice letter A? He prayed for a providential crossing. Now, you've got to remember, I want, you, I, want you to get in the, I want you to get into the shoes or the sandals of the Apostle Paul for a minute. He is in Corinth. He's writing his very first epistle. The brethren sent him away from Thessalonica. When he was at Berea, the same problem happened. They sent him away. When he was at Athens, he had a small, small fruit. Thank God he had fruit. He had a small amount of fruit, but a church was started in Athens. But he had to go away. Now he's at Corinth. And while he's writing this... Um, Paul had prayed, if you study the context here in Acts chapter 18 a little bit, that coincides with this. In Acts chapter 18, Paul had just started to see this church birth at Corinth. And I referenced it earlier. He began praying, and I think it's from verse 10 or so in Acts chapter 18. He starts praying, and in his heart of hearts, Paul's basically wondering, God, I, am I going to have to move on again? Lord, is this going to happen here? And God gives him this vision. He stays for 18 months, which is a blessing there. He stays for 18 months. And, and during that time, Paul, Paul's writing to this church at Thessalonica. And notice in verses 10 and 11, he makes some astounding statements because he wanted very badly to go back to Thessalonica to be with the believers. Now, how do you know you're supposed to be in the ministry? If you meet all the qualifications, how do you know you're supposed to be in the ministry? When people are on your heart and you can't get them off your heart and mind. That's how you know. You wake up with them on your heart, you go to bed with them on your heart. You wake up in the middle of the night several times with them on your heart. You're on, they're on your heart day and night. When something happens, it affects you in a way it doesn't affect somebody else there, okay? So notice what happens here. Paul said this. Look at verse 10. 90 day praying is seen that we might see your face. Now, a lot of us, you know, a lot, well, not me at least, but some of you are involved with FaceTime, okay? You know what Paul's doing here? He said, I needed some FaceTime with these believers. I miss them. I want to see them. He wasn't content just writing and saying, hoping, well, I hope they read my memo. I hope they read my next book. No, he said, I want to see you so I can see what God's doing in your life. I want face to face. I want to see exactly what's going on. I want to see the smile on your face. I want to see what's happening in your life there. He says that we might see your face. Now notice how he prayed in verse 11. Now God himself, he wasn't looking for someone else to open the door. He was asking for God to open the door. God himself and our Father, 
and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. He's praying for a providential crossing. He's asking God to make possible for him to go back, to cross back over the water, to get back over there to Thessalonica, to spend some time with these believers. You know, the hostilities he had seemed to close the door for him to go in there. He wasn't sure. So he's praying earnestly, Lord, give me some face-to-face time. Hey, you know, I pray that for some of our, some of our churches and places right now around the world. There are places I hope my lifetime I get to go to. There's some places I don't think I'm going to be going to. Uh, right now, I don't think Sri Lanka would be a place to go to right now with everything going to Sri Lanka right now. But if God opened the door, if I knew that's what God wanted me to do, I'm going to go through. I'm not going to worry about all the bombings and all that kind of stuff because I know God's in that matter. But I'm going to tell you tonight, there ought to be this desire that we want to be there. We want to see those men. Now listen, you're in serious trouble. If you're in the ministry full time, you're in serious trouble. When you lose that heart for people, you're in serious trouble. When you don't have that desire like Paul, night and day praying that I might see your face and spend time with them there, okay? And here's what Paul's saying. He was praying for a providential crossing. He wanted to be with them. He prayed earnestly, Lord, I need to be with them. He said, you know what? I'm not going to try to manipulate things on my own. It has to be God that opens the door. God was the one that closed the door for me to get out of here. I'm going to trust God that God's going to open the door. Now, that's great missionary praying, okay? That's great missionary praying for us to pray for God to open doors in countries where the gospel is forbidden or or maybe there's some hardship. We need to learn something from Paul's praying. That's how we pray for doors to open there. No wonder God wrote that letter there to the church of Philadelphia there in Revelation 3 and I set before you an open door. I believe most doors are open because somebody prayed for that. And if by chance God opens the door, he wants us to pray for more open doors. Amen? Believe that's what he wants us to do. Now, God, Paul prayed and his focus here was for providential crossing. He wanted to get the, Now, let me tell you something. Sometimes, sometimes, it happens in every church, there may be a little bit of a barrier between you and someone else. And sometimes it might be a misunderstanding. A lot of times it's a misunderstanding. Wrong perception. And you know, when, when God moves in our heart that we need to fix that. By the way, you need to obey him if he says you better fix that. Amen? Okay? Then you know what we need to pray for? God, I need you. Or you know that needs to get repaired. What you need to pray for is God, help, open, help him open that door. Because it needs to be you that opens the door, not me pushing some doors open there, okay? A lot of times people say, well, I, I feel like I prayed. I need to go there. A lot of times it's someone o- pushing the door open. Hey, listen, if God didn't open that door for you, if God didn't pr- make it very clear to you, then you better not go through that door, amen? Because you're going in the flesh, not going in faith. And Paul's saying, I'm going to trust God by faith. I'm praying seemingly that I'll be able to see your faith. Now, he prayed for a providential crossing. Quickly, notice the second thing he prayed for. Look at verses 10 and 12. And this is the part I want you to grasp tonight. He prayed for a providential crossing, but notice secondly, he prayed for a passionate Christianity. In verse 12, he prayed, he said, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another. Now I want you to stop there for a minute. Paul had not been there. But every one of the epistles, which means these men read the Gospels, every one of the epistles, the writers had pastors' hearts. And with pastors' hearts, they were concerned about the body life. They were concerned that churches were not stagnant. Listen to me tonight, because this is where we're at. They're concerned that churches are not stagnating and how they're treating one another or going backwards. 
Because the biggest thing you find in all the epistles, they're trying to, they're trying to uh, uh, you know, unwind, unwind some difficulties they've had. And Paul is making a statement. Why don't you listen to me tonight about what he's saying. He says, I'm praying that the Lord will make you to increase and abound in love one towards another. Now, a sure sign, you, and you can correlate this for 1 John chapter 2 and 3. A sure sign that we're having, we have some backsliding problems in our life as if this is not evident in what he's talking about here. We're not increasing and abounding in our love one towards another. Not to our little clique. Not to our little group we feel comfortable with. He's talking about the entire body of Christ. The Lord make you increase and abound one towards another. Hey, listen to what he says here in Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. He was emphasizing serving love, not selfish love. He's emphasizing love of what I can, can give over and above, not what I can get. He was emphasizing sacrificial love, not superficial love. Now, why is it important? Because that says something about the maturity, about the strength, about the ongoing, the, the forward going of a church. It says something about where that church is. How are they progressing according to 2 Peter 1 and growing in their faith? Are they adding to their faith there with the ultimate end, getting to charity there, okay? John 13, verses 34 to 35. Look what Jesus told them in the upper room. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Well, you say, why did he tell them that? Because leading into that, they were fighting among each other, Amen. There's power wrangling about who's going to be on Jesus' left and who's going to be on Jesus' right. There's power wrangling who's going to be number one and all those kind of things. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Just love one another. He says, as I have loved Jews, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one another. Now here's the, here's the greatest mar against Christianity. When there's hatred and bickering and fighting because of stupid things. He says, how are people going to know we're disciples of Jesus Christ if we don't love one another? Hey, how are people going to stay and come to our church and be attracted if they don't see you and me loving each other? Amen? Amen. That's old-fashioned revival right there. We can preach about all the other things. Listen, all the other stuff about bitterness and unforgiveness, all the stuff, it can be cured. You just increase the bound and love one towards another. That's what he's saying there. Passion Christianity. So let's ask ourselves a question. Let's circle verse 12. Holy Spirit speaking to you. Am I increasing and bounding my love one towards another? It's easy to read and bypass it, but when you stop here and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, okay, where am I on that matter, right? But he doesn't stop there. Notice there's a second group of people. He's not talking about just, just the body of Christ, not the church members. Notice, secondly, he desired that they increase and abound in love to the unsaved. Look at verse 12, verse 12 again. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men as we do towards you. Now, why did he pray for that? Well, we'll go back to verse 10. He said, I want to see your face. I want to be with you so that God, through us, we can perfect that which is lacking in your faith. The word lacking means there are deficiencies. Now, don't raise your hand tonight. Maybe you should. Are there deficiencies in your faith? There are in mine. Their flaws, yeah. Their weaknesses, yeah. Their gaps, yeah. Okay? That I might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. All of us can increase in faith. All of us can increase in our witnessing. All of us can increase in our praying. Hey, all of us can increase in our love. And so Paul was saying here, here's, here's what I'm praying for. He says, I need to come. I'm not content just writing a letter. That's, that's, that's an easy way out. 
I want to come and face, have FaceTime with you and ask you uh, straight up in your face, are you increasing and abounding in your love one towards another? Okay, we're going to deal with the church. And then he says, secondly, how about to the people in the city of Thessalonica, the unsaved? How about those people that have ill-treated me? How about those people that took Jason out of his house and made him pay an exorbitant fee so he could be set free? Do you love those people? Do you love those people that are against you? Do you love the fact that the very people you're trying to reach are passing laws against you? Do you love the very people that are hostile to you? Do you, do you even see that? He says, he, says, he says here in verse 12, he says, I want you to bound in love towards all men. Now we're coming off a great Easter outreach. But that doesn't mean we stop outreach. Amen? We don't stop outreach there. And let me tell you tonight, the sign of a healthy church, the healthy Christian, is to get involved in reaching people with the gospel. Amen. Must have that gospel heartbeat. And he says here that you increase in love towards all men, even as we do towards you. He said, do you remember when I came? I didn't have money. I didn't have a meeting place. I just went to your synagogues. And he says, I reasoned with you. And he says, I taught you. I proclaimed Christ. He says, I want you to do the very same thing. Now let me encourage you tonight. We're going to the summer. There's spring months. We've got about three more hours of sunshine today. I want to encourage you to get involved with me and help us to win people to Christ this summer. Amen. Amen. I want you to get involved and do something for Christ. Get out of your comfort zone. Go knock on a door you haven't been to before. Go develop some prospects, some down the street there. Get somebody into church. Go after souls. Have a desire for people to get saved. Hey, make a list of everybody you know. Go after them for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And then finally, would you notice the last thing tonight? We're talking about the game changer. We see the fundamental. The prayer is a fundamental game changer. We see the frequency, says night and day. That's how the game changer happens. The fervency, praying exceedingly. We're begging God over and above what anybody else would do. Our focus is for an increase in our love towards the body of Christ. An increase in our love for the lost. But notice in verse 13, the fulfillment. Now this is how Paul was praying. When Paul prayed, when he was encouraging them how he prayed, he's looking at the tail end of things. He's looking at the finish line. Now Paul was long, long, he was, he was long term in what he did. And everything Paul did as you study his writings, he was always looking at the finish line. He was always concerned about the coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, we ought to be concerned about the coming of Jesus Christ too, amen? amen. And in verse 13, notice this. Again, bear in mind, verse 10, he says, We're praying that we might see you and fill up that or perfect that which is lacking in your faith to the end. And that's a good thought, to the end. To the end, he may establish your hearts, and I want you to underline this phrase, your hearts unblameable in holiness. Now he's not talking about their faith, even though that's the reference there. He's talking about their hearts, and when you write this in your Bible, write this in your notes, he's talking about their attitude. He's talking about their attitude. Write that down, please. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm worried. I'm concerned. Jesus is coming. We're going to heaven. Thank God we're going to heaven. Amen? But he said, listen. Listen. Are you allowing God to do that good work in you until the day of Christ? Philippians 1, 6. 
You allow him to do that good work in you? Is, it, is God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure to the day of Christ? Is God have full liberty in your heart? He says, I'm praying there's something lacking in your faith. Because he says to the end, he says, I'm looking at the finish line. He says, hey, church of Thessalonica, I'm not there. And I'm getting reports. And I'm concerned. And I'm looking from a distance. And I see something missing here. He says, here, here's my heart's desire. Jesus is coming soon. He talked about that all through this book. Because we're going to get into rapture there in a little bit. He says, I'm concerned. Jesus is coming soon. And he says, listen, when we get taken up, I want you to stand before our Lord, unblameable in holiness in your heart. I want to be known that your attitude was right, right now, and your attitude is right when Jesus comes. Your attitude determines your altitude, as someone said. Now, what do you mean by attitude? Let me give you some thoughts here tonight. If we're not careful, you want to write these down if they're not in your notes. If you're not careful, and I'm not careful, we will get careless in our attitude. We can become conceited in our attitude. That means we get puffed up and proud. We can become complacent in our attitude. And that's a big problem with Christianity today. We get, we're just... You know, we're just kind of floating along. We can become cantankerous or bitter in our attitude. Amen? Amen. Sour-faced Christians, looking like you swallowed the whole lemon tree, not just the lemon. Amen? We can be corrupted in our attitude. We get around the wrong friendships and they corrupt our thinking. We can become contaminated in our, in our, in our, in our attitude. And listen, we can become callous or hardened in our attitude. That covers everything. And Paul, you have to understand Paul's heart because this is not the only letter he's writing about. He says, I'm looking at the end. To the end, God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. And by the way, he doesn't end the subject of holiness there because he continues in chapter 4. Before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now he's saying here, I'm concerned about how, you, how, how you're going to stand before God. Colossians 1, and 29, would you notice this here? He says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying there, I only got one shot at this with you guys. And when you get before God, I want to present you perfect before God. And that's what he's saying in verse 13 here. That your hearts may be blameless, be established unblameable in holiness. That your attitude, your spirit is unblameable. It's without blame, without tarnish before our Lord. I put this in my notes, it's in your notes. What happens in your heart is what is happening in your life. What is happening in your heart is what is happening in your life. Prayer is a game changer. We pray for God's best in the life of his people. I want you to look around the room tonight before you leave. And other than your family, I want you to look for somebody that you don't know very well. And you'd covenant this week for the next seven days to pray for that faith of that person. You say, well, I don't know anything about them. Paul tells us how to pray for them, how to pray for one another. Prayer is a game changer. 1945, in Germany, in the Rhineland region, the U.S. Army's 35th Infantry Division 
was pushing through woods and towns trying to follow up on another company of soldiers that were ahead of them. And the report came in that the company that was ahead of them had incurred severe casualties, a lot of wounded. And they went through this thickly wooded area. When they got there, they saw this kind of a stone house, kind of a cottage there. And in the field right in front of it were all these bodies, which were American soldiers strewn all throughout the, all the field there. And they were having a hard time as they saw that, recognizing this is an open field. There's nowhere for us to run for cover. And so this 35th Division, they, they made their cover behind this house where there were some bodies there. And the report of the one who was writing this story looked down and he says, we were horrified. Because the enemy was all over there with machine guns and automatic weapons ready to roll us down. And we didn't know what to do. And the man writing this was a, the story was a Christian. And as he made his way there, needless to say, he was quite scared and thought this might be it. And he's wondering, what are we going to do for these wounded? And what about our company? We just got set up. Our, 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 our commanding officers had no realization that sending us here, we are going to be sitting ducks here. We're going to be shot up. And this Christian man, as he approached there, was a God-fearing man, came from a God-fearing family. He prayed under his breath something like this. He said, God, Please do something. Lord, you've got to do something, Lord, for us. Please do something for us, dear Lord. We're, we're not going to make it. We've got to get these guys up, and we've got to get ourselves, and we've got to clear this field and get out of the range of open fire. Please do something. And one of his men took a step out. He said, well, someone's got to make the first step. I'm about to run. And he said, I'm going to run out. And I'll try to distract the enemy fire. The rest of you guys, as soon as they start firing, you just kind of see where it's going, which way you see the bullets firing, and you try to evade as fast as you can. And as soon as that man stepped out, before even the enemy started firing, out of nowhere, listen, out of nowhere, a plume of white, of, of white smoke just kind of descended on that, on that field there. And the plume of white smoke that descended there blocked the vision of everyone on the enemy's side. They couldn't see anything. And the man that was just praying, there, Lord, you got to do something. He looked and he says, whoa, this may be, where did this come from? And immediately he looked at the other man. They said, hey, we got a shot here, guys. We better run through this field because their, their vision has just been blocked off. We've got a short period of time. Everybody grab one man that you see on the floor there and run off. And every one of that company, the 35th Infantry Division, they all ran out and grabbed somebody. They made their way through. They went out to the open field, got back into the woods, got way back in the woods. Everyone they needed to get, they got out of there. And as soon as the last man made his entry to the woods, the puff of smoke disappeared again. The Germans had no idea what had happened there. The enemy, they started firing away and they shot off some mortars. They destroyed the building. When they started building, they realized there was nobody there. The American soldiers got off. This is a true story. A few weeks later, this soldier, who was a Christian, got a phone call from his mother. And his mother called, and she's from Dallas, Texas, and she said, Son... She said, um, I'm glad I got a hold of you. She said, what in the world was happening where you were at on March 9th? Now, all those men, they didn't know what was happening, but all of them were saying this. Now, this is back in the days when people lived more God-fearing than today, okay? They were saying, this must be from God. His mother called him and she said, son, what was going on on March 9th? And he described the situation. He told her what was going on. And this is what his mother said. She said, son, do you remember Mrs. Tankersley from our church? He said, yeah, mom, I, 
remember Mrs. Tankersley? He said, she said, Mrs. Tankersley was asleep, and at 1 o'clock in the morning, U.S. time, Dallas, Texas time, she felt a jolt that woke her up. In her heart of hearts, God was telling her, you better get on your knees to pray for this young man. Before she got on her knees, she called the lady, the mother of that young man. She says, she called her by name. She said, ma'am, I don't know what to tell you, but God just woke me up and said, I got to get on my knees. I'm going to pray for your son right now. And the lady that, you know, the mother said, well, what's going on? She said, I don't know. Just God, God told me I need to pray for your son. And she said, would you join me in prayer? And so the mother got on her knees and prayed. She prayed for about an hour or so and then went back to bed. Mrs. Tankersley prayed from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And when she prayed, this is what she did before she got off her knees. She was praying for this boy. And this is what she prayed. Listen to this. This is so awesome. She said, Lord, whatever danger Spencer's in, just cover him with a cloud. How many believe prayer is a game changer? Whatever trouble he's in, Lord, cover him with a cloud. True story. True story. Prayer is not a futile exercise. It's the exercise of faith. It's getting hold of God. But tonight, we see a dimension of prayer that far exceeds what we're used to. Night and day, praying exceedingly. He speaks about the fundamental. He speaks about the frequency. He speaks about the fervency. He speaks about the focus. And he speaks about the fulfillment. To the end, he may establish you unblameable in, in heart and holiness before him. How's your praying tonight? Does he need a notch up? Is it a game changer? It can be, and it should be. It should be. Our Father, tonight I ask this evening that you help us to really take a look right here in the middle of 1 Thessalonians about the game changer Pauline praying can make in our lives. All of us, perhaps in one of these areas or of all these areas, recognize there's a need for some changes. Night and day, praying exceedingly, praying that the love of the brethren, the church would increase and bound one towards another and towards all men. And for our attitude and for our spirit. And God, even as that prayer that one man prayed that, Lord, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, help me willing to change. And if I'm right, help me be easy to get along with. Uh, Father, forgive us tonight. We, we get so caught up with so much minutia, insignificant things, petty Christianity. God, help us tonight to be immersed with a passionate Christianity, a biblical praying that makes a difference. Father, have your way in homes and in families and individual lives. Father, as we give the invitation, maybe someone here tonight is not sure they're saved. I pray before they leave tonight that they would trust your son, Jesus Christ, as personal Savior. Father, have your way tonight in us in Jesus' name. Now, as we stand, the piano's going to play. I'm going to urge us to stand. If you need to come tonight, how about just commit yourself, as Paul did, to praying exceedingly tonight. Would you do that this evening? To praying exceedingly night and day. There's some praying, some habits about our praying needs to change. Some habits that need to change. Praying exceedingly. We need to pray for God to do some things. I mean, God can change things. God can change things. If some old crusty sinner needs to get saved, God can change them. But you know, a lot of times our praying, the most important person that needs to change, needs to change me. Needs to change you. 
Would you let God have his way tonight? God could change our church. We need to pray for God to send laborers to the harvest. We need to pray for boldness and power. We've got to place our circumstances are bigger than God when God is bigger than our circumstances. Let's do that tonight. What a game changer. The fundamental is prayer. The fervency is prayer. The frequency is night and day. The focus is for one another. That's what we need to pray for tonight. We don't need more buildings and all those things, even though we probably do. But we need to increase and abound. That's how we measure. That's, how we, that's the benchmark of Christianity, that we're increasing and abounding in love, one towards another and towards all men. Father, we're challenged tonight from 1 Thessalonians 3 of the dynamic of prayer. And though, Lord, we can talk about prayer so much, the dynamic of prayer, Lord, just, it helps us every time we read the scriptures, how insignificant. Lord, man, when I think about the disciples, they saw Jesus, but they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Paul said, I will that first of all, the prayer, supplications, intercessions be made for all men. And that I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without doubting. Father, help us tonight to commit ourselves to praying as Paul exemplified tonight. Praying exceedingly night and day. Father, we pray for spiritual growth. We pray for spiritual victories. We pray for more souls to be saved. We pray, God, that in each of our church ministries we'll see changes that are beyond us even beyond what we pray for, because you promised to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Thank you tonight for, Lord, what we've studied and heard, and I pray that tonight that we'll apply this for transformation for your glory. Dismiss us with your blessing. I do pray tonight and beg you this evening, Lord, that you send laborers from this church into the harvest field. I pray for laborers, God, around the world, and laborers for church extension ministries. And Lord, for pastorates and churches we can start, I pray that you send forth laborers. Lord, the demand exceeds the supply. And God, we need to do something about it. You told us to pray about it. And so that, Lord, we can find the leading of the Lord. Have your perfect way, we 